Airbit is an operating system for a global networked computer with a global file system. It has its own virtual machine, programming language, OS kernel, and identity layer. It dubs itself as a clean slate OS and network for the 21st century. More and more technology, because it's so pervasive in our lives, software is so pervasive in our lives, it will increasingly also be a political stance. Whereas before, I guess people could write it off as just some nerds doing some stuff on the side. But yeah. increasingly now, I think it structures our society. Hi, this is Sri. I'm a YC alum and a research engineer focused on natural language processing for search. And this is Will. I'm a YC alum and independent researcher who's worked across e-commerce, cryptocurrencies, and financial industries. Welcome to the Technium, where we talk about the edge of technology and what we can build with it. An optimistic look at the road ahead. How's it going, Will? <laughs> it's going all right. How about you? pretty good i'm very very excited for this week's topic and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I excited or apprehensive i don't know <laughs> both both i'm certainly feeling something is what i'll say right right, right. <laughs> but anyway before we jump in yeah what what do you have to drink this week i got a bundaberg guava sparkling fruit drink it's australian wow. apparently and so i guess i've never heard of it it's super sweet i had to dilute it it's got 86 percent of your daily allowance for sugar Woo. So, okay. Yeah, this, they should just call it a concentrate rather than a fruit drink. Yeah. Wow. Well, maybe you'll be super high energy and hyped. Yeah. <laughs> I've got, what is this? Poppy strawberry lemon prebiotic soda. That's not probiotics, prebiotic soda. So this will do something, some kind of digestive help, I think. But what is on the front? It has holes in it. It would probably trigger people with tryptophobia. That's true. It's a strawberry. <laughs> I see it's a strawberry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, what are we talking about this week that we're so excited about and app so, apprehensive? Yeah, yeah. So this week we are talking about Urbit. Urbit is an operating system for a global networked computer with a global file system. It has its own virtual machine, programming language, OS kernel, and identity layer. It dubs itself as a clean slate OS and network for the 21st century. So there's a, there's a lot to unpack there, but basically... Yeah, what does it all mean? <laughs> What's it all mean? Yeah, so this is this is an operating system stack that has been rethought from first principles. And it's been rethought from first principles at every level of the stack. So it has uh, its own virtual machine with its own instruction set called Knock. It has its own programming language called Hoon. It has its own operating system kernel called Arvo. And then it has its own application layer on top of that. And then not only this, but it has its own network that's called Ames, and it has its own identity layer called Azimuth. So if you think about every single part of these things, none of this reuses the standard software infrastructure that we're used to coming from Unix and, and all of that. And instead, they've sort of rethought everything from the ground up. Yeah, and it's not just that there are people building social apps on top of it, and like the, it, it, the Urbit system has given some thought as to how social networks and messaging sh systems should work between people and it reaches all the way up there as well. So we're not kidding when we say full stack. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, it's definitely a opinionated project. It has a variety of philosophies that it espouses and encodes basically into the design of this operating system. We'll go into all of that. But first, we do have to caveat this by saying that this project is a bit controversial in no small part due to its creator and initial founder, this guy named Curtis Yarvin. He is a interesting guy, computer scientist, but also a bit of an amateur philosopher. He wrote some blogs under an alias called Mencius Moldbug, where, where he endorses some fringe political ideologies. 
specifically against democracy and, and things like this. So we do have to caveat this by saying that a lot of what we're going to talk about today is is the product of his mind, and we can definitely see some of those political philosophies coming through. We'll try to sort of deliver the technical aspects objectively, but of course, as always, when we talk about the second and third order effects, we will get into a little bit of this philosophical aspects as well. Yeah, so can't wait to get started. So so where where should we start with the technology? We can go high, we can go low, we can go middle. Where, where should we start? Yeah. Yeah, I think the best place to start, the, the sort of the core of the Urbit operating system is the Arvo kernel. So uh, Urbit and all of the things that, that surround Urbit basically exist to support this idea that an operating system can be a stateless function, basically, in, a fu in the functional programming sense. So, and on top of that, in order to support this, of course, they have their own VM and they have their own networking stack and things like that. But I, I thought that was the, the best place to start is to understand the kernel. Uh, yeah, I, I thought the architecture of the thing was of the OS was actually more interesting than the underlying VM and the language. And maybe it's because the underlying language in VM actually has a lot of the obfuscation that we talked about earlier, the renaming of stuff that makes it a little bit difficult to understand. I mean, this guy had years, like over a decade and a half, yeah. maybe to like come up with all this stuff and put it all together. And we've only had what the a couple of days to kind of do our research and, and put it together. And so, so I, I would say that that's probably part of the reason why, but mm -hmm. uh, so, so yeah, let's start with that. Like I also thought the functional aspect was pretty interesting because I think when it comes to functional programming, it's still not widely accepted by a lot of mainstream developers. And we've only managed to pull everybody halfway. Like Guy Steele, the inventor of Java said that Java wasn't for Lispers, it was for C++ programmers. And he was able to drag them about halfway to Lisp. And then <laughs> in the intervening years, React also managed to drag uh, imperative programmer, JavaScript programmers about halfway to functional programming. And so I think Urbit just says, well, I think everybody was too conservative before. There's a good idea here. Let's just take it all the way, take it all the way mm -hmm. to the hoop and see what happens if we just dunk this. And yes. so like, what would a functional OS look like? Like what sort of mm -hmm. things would it buy us? I, I think that's the, the part that stood out to me as most initially interesting. Yeah, so I think the interesting part about Urbit is the Arbor kernel and how it models an operating system as a stateless function. So specifically, how they describe the Arbor kernel is that it's a solid state interpreter, meaning that it doesn't have <laughs> any type of transient state or temporary state but rather the entire state of the kernel is persisted in this single event log. Every single thing that the operating system has ever seen, all the events that it has received from the network, as well as all of its internal events are supposedly stored in this event log. And then the Arvo kernel is a type of reducer. Uh, if you're familiar with like Redux reducers or state reducers from functional uh, reactive programming in that it takes a state and an input. And then if you apply that function, it outputs another new state and an output and then you just apply that over the event stream to get to your current state of the system. Uh, so yeah, that's that's something new. It's, a, it's applying a lot of the concepts that you see in functional reactive programming, but it's applying that to an entire OS kernel. Yeah, I think for those viewers out there that are familiar with FRP or have looked into the lineage of the current front end uh, frameworks, 
and trace them back through Elm, like you, FRP will sound familiar. I think the new thing here is that the, decided to apply it to the entire state of the world, the entire OS, and say, what what can we get out of it? And so, so that's that's effectively what we're doing here. And also, I chuckled a little bit at the solid state thing. Is it's similar in that like solid state in my mind really represents a different thing altogether, which is like the the, the transistors. And I've never heard anybody else anywhere mention it as yeah. solid state. And so you'll find in Urbit that this is the case for a lot of things. And sometimes things are justified, right? Because in the nomenclature, I guess real quick to kind of flesh out this thing about the naming scheme, the nomenclature in regular technical jargon is sometimes confused because like we'll talk about consistency, but we'll mean it in different senses in different contexts. Like consistency in distributed systems is very different than consistency in databases. Like one is like the, the, the state the syncing of states in distributed system and consistency in databases, I think has to do with the transactions and the, the consistency of the data on the database after a, a transaction has happened. And you'll find this throughout. And I think because we use it so often, we don't recognize it. And, and rightfully, sometimes Urbit terminology says, okay, these are completely separate topics. We use the same word for it. Let's call them different things. And then other times it's just, we already had a good word for it. We just wanted to call it a, a different thing altogether. And and so that definitely is a stumbling block for a lot of new users. And so depending on who you are and where you are in your life, like that's either a good thing or a bad thing. And so either yeah. way, I think like you need to be able to get past that to kind of squint a little and see the system for what it is, which is actually like a FRP system applied to an entire OS. Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting because in some sense that that solid state metaphor makes sense to me in that when I think about solid state, there's sort of no moving parts, right? A solid yeah. state, like disk is, is, as opposed to like a spinning platter magnetic disk, right? Mm-hmm. And in this case, if you think about the moving parts of a system as being the transient state, the memory of the system, which is not persisted and things like that, mm-hmm. then actually this is the source of a lot of software errors Problems. and issues, yeah. right? right? Like this yeah. is this is the whole thing, right? Like if you- If, if you it were, weren't for a state, like computers would be so easy, right? Yes. They also wouldn't be Turing complete, I think, but- like if it weren't for state, like computing would not, we would not have to hire legions of programmers to do yes. what we do, right? Yeah. Well, not just any state, but I think specifically transient state. If uh, you are able to capture the entire world, right, and just make that inspectable, then perhaps you can reason about the behavior of the system. Mm-hmm. And the problem comes when you have state that you can observe and then state that you can't observe, but it's somehow doing something that's affecting the behavior of the system. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that that's why for front end, FRP, the Elm architecture, and then the Elm architecture's descendants, things like Redux and those state managers in the React world, mm-hmm. the reason why they are so powerful is that they make that state explicit and they make that state observable, whereas previously it was maybe state that was stored in individual DOM elements or in local variables and closures that you can't reach into, things like this. And instead, it just says, okay, you have a single state object, you can inspect it, you have a function that is applied on top of the state object, that then gives you your next state at t plus one. And you can test this, you can reason about it, you can replay the history, you can do time travel debugging, you can do all kinds of things because you can see the entire world. Yeah, effectively not just see the entire world, but see you're outside of time now. Like Because if everything is recorded in an event log, you're effectively outside of time. And so when you're outside of time, you can just do whatever you want. A lot of things are easier, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I thought it was pretty cool. And you know, at, at the OS level, there's a lot of interest in making the, the running of an operating system much more in this sort of idempotent, stateless view. If you think about package managers like Nix and Nix OS mm-hmm. that w- maybe we should do an episode about, but 
basically yeah, they're trying to say list. <laughs> yeah the 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 configuration of the software packages on your system should be descriptive and reproducible so then you don't have to worry every time you set up the system whether you you know ran the right series of steps with the right set of side effects things like that and then even things like if you think about kubernetes or terraform where they say for a collection of computers you should be able to describe their end state and then there should be a you know reconciliation algorithm that then gets the system into that state and then you don't worry about well the sequence of commands executing them in the right order and the right way such that you get to your end goal. So so I think that this is a compelling idea. People are applying it at all variety of levels of running of operating systems, but no one has quite actually said, hey, let's just take this idea and make the whole kernel into this thing, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's Urbit's kind of trick that, that it's done. <laughs> say say your FP without saying your FRP. Yeah, say your, how do you yeah. say your FRP without, if, is that the vibe? <laughs> yeah, well, well so, so Curtis Yarvin in one of his early blog posts he said, if Urbit is anything, it's like Connell Elliott's FRP, though with no monads, no gonads, no monoids, or other meta-mathematical torture. So, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, definitely, like, math has its own set of jargons. But like you said in the previous episode, to be fair, math was there first. So, mm-hmm. But yeah, like, definitely, I think it's in some ways it has a point because, like, everything in computing is made up like once you understand that the computer is just manipulating symbols without really understanding or ascribing any meaning to them then the the labels and symbols are really arbitrary and they're for humans and so if there are things that are inconsistent he's just like well if i'm redoing everything if i'm imagining i am the one that's redoing all this stuff like i guess he thought about it in terms of like what would an alien programming language would be like but another way to think about it is probably like what if i was a man of today and i was in a time machine and i went back to the 60s and i had to rebuild all this from the beginning and so that's that's effectively what he did yeah yeah absolutely so yeah i think it's an interesting idea that's the kernel right Mm -hmm. and then you know you can go up the stack you can go down the stack but Mm -hmm. i think the other idea is that urbit is an operating system for basically what is a global network computer yep and so I think this involves going up a stack to understand that there is a there's a network that's called Ames that routes events between these operating systems. So like, this is where the fun part comes. Each instance, running instance of the Urbit OS is called a ship. So the Ames <laughs> network <laughs> routes events between ships. Take and notes, each, people. <laughs> yes. And each ship has an address, which is a kind of public key based address that you can kind of think about if you're familiar with like ENS and these other crypto identity mm-hmm. projects it's very very much similar to, similar to that so ENS is the Ethereum name service system yeah. service yeah, yeah it basically it's like a DNS but built on top of the Ethereum system so so basically the names that you generate and buy are things that you own as nfts and it's it's the same thing here our favorite stuff crypto we just can't get away yeah. from it <laughs> yeah so so this is actually foundational to urbit this idea of owning your identity by owning this address because this address is one it's something owned by you it's also minted in this decentralized way so that it, this doesn't rely on a central authority to produce these addresses and once you buy them you own them and that's your identifier in the system they're basically like usernames and then the the yeah. other interest the other interesting part is that they're sold and the proceeds from the sale are used to fund the development of urbit yeah so the the addresses are something that, that you own they're part of your identity and they're used to route traffic along the aims network and so in order to, to participate and use urbit meaningfully you do have to buy an address 
And so this is also part of their design. They want the system to be something that you buy into and you have ownership in rather than being a walled garden that provides you services for free and maybe in an unsustainable way. So that the service would then have to rely on ad networks or something like that. And presumably people have tried to fight email spam for a long time. They're like, if only you had to pay for email. Well, so now that people are rebuilding these networks, the hypothesis as it goes is that if you have to pay for these identity, you're less likely to want to burn it by sending spam through it because there's only, I think, 4 billion addresses available. Eventually they're all going to get used up. And so it's not going to be very profitable for spammers if they have to pay $10 per an identity or whatever. I think it's at probably $30 mm-hmm. now or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe the scam is like insurance that pays way more than 30, but like that, that, that's, <laughs> right. that's the hypothesis anyway. So that that's why it's there. Not only to, it, it's playing double, if not triple duty from funding the foundation to a spam prevention me- mechanism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting that the Ames network is, is run in this hierarchical way. So each address that you own is called a planet, planet. and then higher up are stars and galaxies. And so these are infrastructure nodes, basically, mm-hmm. that provide their routing services on the Ames network. And there is some type of reputation system that, such that, uh, like you're saying, if you own a planet and you're a bad actor that is maybe spamming everybody else on the network, then your star, uh, through which your messages are routed, could add you to some deny list and then deny you services and just drop your messages, right? And then it would be up to you to find another star who is willing to entertain your traffic. And so through this way, there is some type of reputation attached to your identity. Yeah, and we'll get to this uh, later because one of the things that it implies is a social structure or like a some type of way that people would be able to organize themselves because effectively the stars and galaxies are ways in which you can do some sort of enforcement and yeah, like that is, we'll, we'll talk about all that, but that's effectively what it is. Yeah. And the, I think the stars and galaxies also provide software updates. And so I think that's that's also the case. And so I guess they they can stop sending you updates. So your client can no longer be compatible with stuff over time. Yeah, I think the other thing that is probably interesting is how the update mechanism works. I wasn't able to dive deep into this. Or were you able to do that? Because I thought that, because things are functional, like you would be able to send the updates and like the underlying core VM will stay, but then it just tacks stuff on to the end of the event log. And so you would get updates that way. That That's kind of how it works, right? Yeah, that's my understanding. And it, it, th- these are all kind of very lispy ideas. Like, mm-hmm. so the there's an underlying VM, which never gets updated. And the creator of this is very proud of, of this, this VM language. Mm-hmm. But... The, the Urbit OS or the Arvo kernel is just a function and mm-hmm. that can change over time. And so that I, I believe that the function's code is just part of the OS state because everything is part of the operating yeah. system state mm-hmm. and the operating system updates come as an event on the network, which then cause the kernel when applied to when it when applied to that event changes the source code of the kernel itself. Yeah, and because it's a function, I guess you can always just ship it. You can ship it over and over again because it should be unique. I don't know if they actually hash it or anything like Unison does, but because it's a function, mm-hmm. like it's not 
it's not different every time you try to install it because like the npm packages yep. like sometimes they're fetching other stuff and your service could be up or down and they also like sometimes if you're, you're compiling compiling c stuff i think there could be side effects in there as well right like sometimes mm -hmm. yep. it's it's pinging out to stuff so it's not guaranteed to succeed and when you know this it's a little scary when you set up your infrastructure because like how many times in my git repository like like if you've ever tried in any long running code base where you try to check out a commit from like a year or two ago, like there's hardly any reasonable expectation that you should have that it'd be able to run because all the dependencies, like they may or may not be there or they, if they are there, they may or may not compile. So mm. in that sense, I think like functional is probably a better way to go. Yeah, I think so. And, and, you know, there, there are parallels now to a lot of, a lot of, software projects that are less mm -hmm. esoteric like uh, you know nix and nix os that, mm -hmm. that we talked about yeah. is one way of thinking about that and then also like just for general sysadmin work like things like puppet and salt stack and things these are ways of basically making idempotent updates to your os and your running system idempotent meaning that you can apply them multiple times and you'll get the same outcome they don't rely on side effects instead they specify something that you can apply once or you can apply multiple times and you get the same outcome every single time. And so this is this is advantageous definitely in the case of things like OS updates. Like when you update your Mac or at least when I update my Mac, it tells me I have to plug it into the battery or don't run it on the battery because I suppose if my battery dies while it's applying whatever right. it's doing, my I've bricked my system, right? And that's right, because probably not the case. Yeah, probably not the case because it's it, it might be a, it might end up in some in determinant intermediate state that like mm -hmm. the software doesn't know how to recover from and that's why it makes sure that you try to plug it in and hope for the best right yeah basically but yeah like you said in urbit all of these updates actually any state transition not just these os updates are transactional and idempotent so you don't have to worry about that yeah and so the other interesting thing about the aims network is that well why do you want to do all this well because by joining this network you are part of this global file system and so you can actually just read data off of anybody's ship. So if you know their their Urbit address, you can mount their files, you can run programs that are running on their ship. With or without their permission? So uh, you don't require their permission, but the data can be encrypted, right? So if you, you might just be reading garbage, but you can actually oh, just mount, mount any data available anywhere. So it's all part of this global namespace that's prefixed by your Urbit address. And then the security model is basically, is it, you know, is, is it encrypted? And, and available or understandable by you or not. I see. Yeah, because then if all the programs are functional, then you can just copy them around, no problem. It doesn't actually matter whose computer they are on, I assume. Mm -hmm. Yeah, basically, yeah. And and the files also, the files are just structured data that's structured in uh, this data structure that these functional languages that this whole system is built on, Hoon and Knock, run on. And so mm. it kind of, you get the serialization and deserialization for free because it's sort of vertically integrated. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, and it, it kind to, of reminds to that me a bit point, of like Plan Nine. Yeah, one of, one of the things that was also interesting was they folded serialization and deserialization as part of the purview of the programming language because a lot of programming languages throw that as a ah somebody else will worry about it as a third party developer or something. But because it was built with a network in mind, it took serialization deserialization pretty seriously, and so it made it so that serialization deserialization. Should really have an acronym for that, like modem. Certy. Certy, is it? Certy. Mm -hmm. Okay. Certy is is type checked. And because it's relative the core data structure is really simple, it could be easily verifiable. Because like a lot of times the exploits can happen across the network 
explicitly because of bugs in the deserialization of these uh, network packets that Urbit is trying to get rid of that as a potential attack surface. So I, I thought that was a nice thing. <laughs> it was nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of good ideas all around, right? If you if you cut through the noise, and and yeah. but the the last part where where I think there's the most noise, and I think we won't dwell too much on is <laughs> Hoon and Knock. Uh, so Hoon is a high level functional programming language, right? So uh, so just to give our our listeners a map, we we first started with the kernel, we went up to identity, and now we're going down in the stack. So like we're going below, down in the stack, right? Below in under the kernel, it's written in Hoon, a functional a type functional programming language. Yeah, yeah. And you can think about Hoon as playing the role of C in Unix, right? Mm-hmm. This is the, the language that applications are written in, and, and in fact, most of the kernel itself is also written in. Yeah. And then there's a virtual machine that Hoon runs on called Knock, and Knock is a Turing-complete set of basically 30 rules that transform data recursively into other types of Knock data. And it's it's written in a in a very funny way. <laughs> so the only mathematical operation that is available in this virtual machine is integer increment and w- <laughs> zero represents true and one represents false. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And apparently the, the justification was like, oh, well, C programmers like indicate success with a zero and any other number is false. So we might as well do it that way. And I did lear- learn that later on. This was an early decision. And this is the, one of the few things that the creator regrets. But everything else, yeah. he's just like, I stand by my work. <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess everybody yes. has their regrets. And so this is one of them. Yeah. So Hoon, it looks really weird to a lot of people. And I think, like I said before, like syntax is a big stumbling block for any programming language. And so a lot of the new ones nowadays will decide to model themselves after a C-like language or JavaScript-like because it's familiar enough to people so that they can get to kind of more meaty ideas so they don't get stuck. But here they decided, well, I guess one of the things that they did was to make a comparison with mathematics to say like mathematics used to be written in prose and that was really complicated to understand and if you've ever seen one of the examples i would also agree like trying to describe a mathematical formula without mathematical notation in prose it's actually quite difficult to know what the hell they're talking about it's hard to parse like even though math is seemingly hard to parse for people that don't know all the symbols like once you do you're like okay like i see generally what's going on here he makes the same argument for that in programming so what we'll do is that the major operators in the programming programming language will be represented by rune and a rune is is basically two characters together like two symbols like a bar and a dash or a colon and a question mark stuff like that and and the hoon language is littered with this stuff and so so i think that's the thing that kind of trips people up initially as well but then i should also remind our viewers that there's plenty other languages like j and k like if you haven't heard of them look them up maybe we should do a future episode on it but like they are derivatives of another language called apl by the famous iverson he did one of the famous like computer demos for computer interactive. But anyways, like mm. APL is an array-based language that has its own symbols, which requires you to have a special keyboard in order to program in APL. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so Urbit is, is not taking it nearly as far as some of these other ones. So we'll, we'll do a, like a, a future episode on that at some point. But like, I, I thought that was pretty funny. 
But I think the, the, the last point I'll make on that is that one of the reasons for the runes is that he wanted to make a backbone of two character runes so that you can follow the sequence of expressions top to bottom as opposed to other functional languages where you're getting that callback hell sort of thing where you get that triangle. And so I'm not sure that I exactly buy that either because like you, you do have the pipe operator in Elm or the pipe, pipe, I forget what the yeah, thing yeah. is, pipe, pipe, care, angle barricade to, to kind of have everything in a backbone. So, but that was the reason that he gave for that. And so people that become familiar with enough say that it's readable to them. So I can only take their word for it. So yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, I think that that is a pretty pretty generous <laughs> like view of, of Hoon. And not to say it's a bad language or anything. I've never I haven't written any of the, right. the like, code in Hoon to tell you how what it is to write in. But I think that this is another point where I think intentionally, and the, and I will underscore this: a lot of this sort of obfuscation is intentional to be polarizing and to be different. And we'll we'll go into that. But I think that yeah, if you cut through the noise, yeah, it, you're right. It's not that. It's not that different from a lot of other languages, more obscure and languages, it, but like ones yeah, that have yeah. come before. So it's it's not it's not that different there. Yeah, exactly. And, and then, the last thing I'll I'll say oh, yeah. is just about Knock, is that Knock is a very interesting virtual machine. It's it's modeled the according to the original blog post, it's modeled after Maxwell's equations. So Maxwell's equations are a set of four equations from which you can derive a lot of physical phenomenon. And so they're sort of fundamental to physics. And so in a bit of maybe self-aggrandizing, Curtis Yarvin has likened the definition of knock to Maxwell's equations in that it is fundamental and immutable. So while Urban, the OS can change, the definition of knock is fixed and and actually, as Yarvin is very proud of, can fit on a t-shirt. Yeah, um, and I get the sense that it's, <laughs> I mean, it's not the first place I've, I've heard that, actually. I think he did borrow that from uh, either Paul Graham or Alan Kay. I can't remember, but like... He, I, I he, he references both. Uh, yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. I think it was the experience of one of them when they... I think it was Alan Kay when he was learning computer programming way back when, and he uh, saw the program listing for the Lisp interpreter written in Lisp, it would fit on one page and he could cover it with his hand and he was pretty amazed. Mm -hmm. And so I think with good reason that that's amazing. And so I think one of the things that stands out in, in the examples that you see is that like the only operation is to add. And so how do you represent decrement? And so the algorithm is that you start at zero and you count up and you keep adding until you're one less than the number that you are at. And so obviously that's not the way that knock is actually implemented. They do leverage whatever the underlying hardware provides. And so I think they call them jets and they're effectively, I guess they're, I don't know. We, I don't know what they describe jets as. Yeah. So they're basically a, a, an optimization. So mm -hmm. the, the yeah. idea behind jets is that because knock, the knock bytecode is so tight and compact, you can, you can basically pattern match it. So that if you notice that th there is this pattern of mm. starting from zero and yeah. incrementing uh, until n minus one, then a optimizer can then just say, oh, this is just decrement and then swap it out and call out to With a the native implementation. Thing. Yeah. Native implementation. Yeah. And so, so to be fair to knock, it seems like it's a lot of hullabaloo for nothing to just kind of try to have a, as minimal VM as possible to the point where there's actually no decrement operation. And to be fair, <laughs> to the project Urbit aspires to be a computer that you can use in a hundred years that you could 
potentially passed to your children and grandchildren. And in order to do that, it would have to be able to be rebuilt on top of any future hardware. And the easiest way to do that is for the VM knock to be as easy to implement on new hardware as possible because everything else like Hoon, Avro, it's built on top of knock. And so if you can re-implement knock on any hardware, then it's effectively portable anywhere. And so I, I think that's a reasonable assumption. But then one of the things about knock is that there are inefficiencies to having a a VM that only increments, right? And so when you <laughs> want to do things like decrement, what you do is you start from zero and you count up from then. But obviously that's inefficient. So what Knock does is that whenever it pattern matches that Knock code is trying to do a decrement, the implementation will swap that out with a native call to the underlying hardware to actually do a decrement. So if there's a lot of these low-level optimizations that need to call out to native functions. I really wonder how portable it is. And I guess that remains to be seen. I'm not as familiar with it. And so maybe somebody that's more familiar in our audience can tell us whether it's, it's really as portable as it claims to be, if not more than, what was the other portable one that we're talking about? Seemingly, I can't remember what episodes we've done now. Yeah, I don't know. Plan nine? Where? No, not, definitely not plan nine. I can't remember. I mean, Anyways. Yeah, JVM is portable. Oh, is it? Well, it is, but it's like pretty huge, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So nobody's going to try to re-implement JVM on a whole bunch of different hardware if they can help, <laughs> if they have other things that they want to do, maybe? I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, that is the impetus for getting knock as small as possible. And definitely it has its downsides because for viewers interested, there's a really compelling talk by Guy Steele, one of the creators of Java, and he gave a talk called Growing a Language in which he takes that philosophy to task where you want the smallest language as possible because in order to say anything useful, you have to say a whole bunch of things that build up definitions to say stuff. And so he does the presentation in that way also. He starts with like defining what a man and a woman is in order to talk about different people and so on and so forth until he's able to actually like give an actual presentation. So so it is with Hoon. So like, or yeah, because like even though the definition can fit on a t-shirt, it takes a lot of instructions to unwrap that into something useful. And so as an optimization, they take a shortcut and call out to the underlying VM whenever possible. So yeah, yeah. Actually, so you mentioned Guy Steele and the pain of uh, bringing up bootstrapping a language from first principles and defining everything. Yeah. But this is the third time I've made this reference. Alan Kay is really interested in <laughs> establishing interplanetary communication across species. And oh, one right. of the things that he mentions a lot is this language called Linkos, which is a way to bootstrap such communication. And so I wonder what Alan Kay would think about bootstrapping computation using Knock. Somebody yeah. did ask him on HN what he thought of uh, Urbit, and he was just like, well, they've got Verb. I'll, I'll give him that. Mm -hmm. But he said he hasn't really looked too far into what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, given what I know about Alan Kay's work, which is very much in the empowering individuals and, mm -hmm. and democratizing computation in that way, I'm not sure if he would be a big fan of Curtis Yarvin's political views on sort of anti-democratic ideas, but we'll get, we'll get to that. We'll get to yeah. all that good stuff. Right, right, right. <laughs> if, yes. if anything, I think that he does, Alan Kay also has a problem with the current computing landscape as he sees it. Cause like, if you do listen to some of his talks, like he kind of takes a similar approach in that, okay, we need to build things from the ground up in which like we did some prototype demonstrations that you can 
build systems in which most of the work is in a programming language or a compiler for like these higher and higher level domains. And in this way, we can drastically reduce the amount of code that we need to write. And so we've seen mm -hmm. that demonstrated in one of our previous episodes on Hyperfiddle. And also, I guess we're seeing it here in Urbit. And so it, it, to some extent, like I think Hoon as the OS is what, 30K or so? It's definitely like not millions of lines of code that our current OSs yep. are. So maybe there yeah. there is something to be said there about Alan Kay. I think Brett Victor oh, has actually. called him the world, like world's, one of the world's most interesting philosophers, but people just don't know him. That they, they just think of him as yeah. this like object oriented guy. Yeah, yeah. No, actually, now that you mention it, if you go back to our small talk episode, one of the motivating use cases for small talk as a whole mm -hmm. was actually the end goal was to build a tablet for children to use yeah. called Dynabook, mm -hmm. right? And then they worked backwards from that view of the world that every child should have a computer in their in their hand that is accessible to them, understandable by them, and also modifiable by them, right? Mm -hmm. And they worked backwards from that goal to then rethink the programming language, the operating system all the way you know down to you know kernel level optimization and i think even hardware optimization in order to support that idea and actually that does sort of echo urbit and and so this is actually a good good point to step back right so we went deep into okay all of these different stuff well what or, is this or whole the thing? other way it, it it echoes small talk right it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. it's like if i said you look uh, like your father looks like you no 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 it's yeah, the other way around right. you look that's like right. your father <laughs> that's right we will give we have to give respect <laughs> to to the precedents yes so so urbit echoes small talk in that way in that urbit is working towards a particular view of computing and so 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 maybe we can we can go into that mm -hmm. but yeah so basically Urbit is trying to kind of come at it, this from the angle of digital sovereignty. So the fundamental concept is to give users ownership over their identity in the system, and we've yeah. talked about this, and then also give them agency over their computing environment. And one way in which they strive to do this is by keeping things as simple as possible and and maintainable and easy to reason about, at least from a conceptual level, if not mm -hmm. from you know the, the detailed level. And in doing this, it sort of disintermediates corporations and, and other parties who might otherwise take advantage of this complexity in the system and say, okay, delegate your agency towards us. We're going to just run all this stuff for you because it's too complicated. And then you become just a, a, a user or, or an agent. The idea of Urbit yeah. is that you should be able to run the system and participate in this global network without having to delegate to some other party to run this as a service for you. Yeah, and that relates to bundling, unbundling, because, I mean, the bundling part is when things get centralized, and that's because there's just too much choice in too many modular part, and the hard part in trying to do any job to be done is the consolidation and the, the picking of these parts to do your particular job, and that's where we are in computing right before and then people said well you don't want to manage your server we'll manage it for you and yeah. so that that's where the intermediation comes in or disintermediation which one is it basically somebody yes. stepping in as a media yeah. man for you so yeah. so by keep trying to keep things simple i guess urbit is trying to stave off the bundling of any job to be done that anybody has to do in computing yeah yeah exactly and so okay so what does this all buy you well right now what it buys you is that if you run the Urbit OS, and this is a, they dub it an overlay OS. Basically, it means that it runs on top of existing Unix. Mm -hmm. I guess 
potentially in the future they will have maybe a, a Urbit all the way down to the metal, but at least for now it's a, pro- a program that you mm-hmm. run. And it allows you to self-host a variety of applications on your personal server and participate in the Urbit network. These applications are collaborative in nature because of the network-oriented aspect of the Ames network. So they, they have these digital utilities. They have a chat application. They have a, a collaborative text editor, or I think maybe just a normal text editor, but you can publish its contents. Mm-hmm. And then they have basically some type of like Usenet-type groups such that you can associate yourself with people uh, on the Urbit network and then j- chat with each other, share files, things like this. And so these are all kind of basic cloud services, but the interesting part is that they're decentralized, basically, and they, they're run on top of Urbit and the network as a kind of fundamental construct. Mm. Do you know if it's actually uh, easy to run this? Has, have they fulfilled their um, goal of being easy to run? I actually tried to run it earlier today, and I think I have it working, and it's on my computer. I just, uh, you know, open some DMG, and it runs, and it runs fine. And I think that for now, they've had to make a lot of accommodations to their initial vision of like having this be this fully vertically integrated thing, because of course it's still running on top of Unix system. It's not running as the host OS, right? And so they've sort of relaxed that constraint for now in order to get uh, um, participation and buy-in. And then they also expose the UI of the Urbit OS via HTTP, via React frontend, which oh, I thought okay. was funny. <laughs> and so they sort of relaxed the, that constraint as well in that it's not a fully vertically integrated like windowing system or UI uh, library that they're using. Mm-hmm. They're sort of falling back to the web. But yeah, it runs. And it's pretty basic. All the applications are pretty basic. And I think in order to really get value out of them, you have to have that identity and be a participant in the network. Mm-hmm. Right, and join some groups and, and know other people to participate with. Otherwise, like, who are you going to chat with, right? But yeah, it, it works. <laughs> that, what everybody said about video conferencing in the 90s, like, why do I need to see who I'm calling? Because who am I going to be able to call? Just other nerds. <laughs> and so yeah. nobody thought that it would be so pervasive in 2020s in a pandemic. So joke's on yeah. you, <laughs> 90s no, no, commentator. No. I, so. That's true. That's true. I No, I think that this is, it's very reminiscent, actually, of the early internet. And, and, and they mentioned this a little bit, that some... Uh, I mean, Urbit's a reminiscent of the early internet. Not, yeah, not yeah. my comment, but Urbit is. Yeah, sorry, yes. Uh. Uh, Urbit is, is reminiscent of the early internet in that way, in that the only people around to talk to are Urbit nerds, right? <laughs> and But it does create a sense of cohesiveness. Uh-huh. I don't know, because I still have to find some Urbit nerds to talk to, but they've done a very good job on their blog of documenting how people are using Urbit, how, they, how it feels to use Urbit. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they mentioned is that... They want to keep Urbit kind of closed in, in, or, or rather to keep the communities and the interactions on Urbit in, within niche communities rather than this like big broadcast mechanism like Twitter or Facebook or things like that. And they're hoping that by keeping these, the, this type of interaction model, it, it will foil the eternal September f- phenomenon, mm. which is the phrase to describe the downfall of a Usenet, I believe, yeah. where every September there's a big flood of new college students who would join the network and then they would ask stupid questions and everybody would get annoyed and it would ruin Usenet for everybody. Right. And so, it would chase away the, the good commentators, the interesting, and then you just, it's just when all the riffraff came in. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think they're hoping to keep the interaction model. Basically, you could call it echo chambers. They like to call it niche communities. Yeah. <laughs>
yes yeah. yes but i mean like it, i mean in some sense it makes sense i mean the the well-known adage of startup way of getting early customers is that you want like a hundred fervent fervent customers rather than thousands of just kind of lukewarm customers so by that sense that they're probably doing the right thing for for the network for them yeah yeah so this is urban today is that you can run this. They The current state of Urbit, they call OS1. It provides this set of collaborative utilities. Mm-hmm. And they're hoping to evolve it to be to be full-fledged OS. But I think for now, actually, the uh, the Urbit community, a lot of the development and a lot of the discussion happens on Urbit, I guess, via these chats and things like that. So right. they're sort of bootstrapping in this way. And actually, this is a good point to sort of also bring in some of the more philosophical aspects. So the the urbit os is trying to encode cypherpunk values into the mm. os and so all of these what is, things what is cypherpunk for those of us that are either too young or don't read enough you know, sci-fi to know what it is yeah so cypherpunks cypherpunk is a philosophical movement of people who want to use cryptography to protect their digital independence and so they believe and this in sort is of, not a new thing either right this was from way back in the 70s i want to say yeah i think like 70s 80s for sure yeah and it's a very influential movement in that a, a lot of a lot of the early internet users identified with this philosophy and mm-hmm. if you look at the wikipedia article for list of famous cypherpunks you'll see a lot of famous names including Mark Andreessen, I don't know who's curating this list and how they know whether they're <laughs> cypherpunks, but but you know, Wikipedia. there's a lot of famous oh. <laughs> yeah, a lot of famous folks who were foundational to the internet, the World Wide Web, as well as the early days of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and and subsequent projects. And so it's a very influential movement that believes sort of that people should have ownership over their data, ownership over their digital identity, and you can see how uh, Urbit, if it were to take off, would advance this set of values. Yeah, I see. Huh, that is pretty interesting. Then I guess right now it seems like what people are using Urbit for is a to talk to with other Urbiters, like where they kind of can can find a place. I mean, like it's niche already within technology, and so it's great that they can dog food their own stuff to see what's working, what's not. But then, like I guess as usual, in the third part of our segment is that we like to talk about what the second and third order effects of a particular new technology, newish technology is. Like what happens if we found this to be a normal thing like what are the things that would happen if this was a pervasive technology and everybody thought that it was just kind of par for course and but of course why why would you not use this sort of thing why wh- yeah. what do you think like would happen if a functional os were readily adopted by a lot of people like it's a personal computer that you could potentially pass to your grandkids yeah so i think that i really like that last the you know emphasis on the longevity of the system because the way that the urbit folks describe how they view how it feels like to use urbit right the human experience of using urbit it feels like your computer is a place it's like a, your own house that you can arrange in in the way that you like you can customize it in the way that you like and you you're basically in the same way that you don't ask anybody's permission to decorate your house and you become an interior designer, you, you know, Urbit is a place like this. And and so the way that they describe it is that 
There's actually a, a famous architect who a lot of software designers like to cite called Christopher Alexander. Mm. Have you have you heard of this guy? <laughs> yes. I was wondering if it was some other architect, but I think there's only one in the software world. One. Yeah. Yes. So so Christopher Alexander is is an urban planner and architect who I guess somehow made his mark on on folks in the software design world for a variety of reasons, but basically one of his philosophies is that people need a sense of of space or place in order to kind of embody their culture or their you know own personal style or vision of the world and so urbit and with all its private rooms and private chats and an operating system in which you are you know fully in control feels gives a sense of space to computing and so when i read this i thought okay actually maybe this is a type of metaverse because i've been like a huge I've said this multiple times in multiple episodes. I don't think that the metaverse means a 3D environment where people are running around. Mm. I think the metaverse is exactly this. It is a digital space in which you can participate, you can modify, you can customize, and you're an empowered participant in the same way that you are in a in the regular world. And so maybe Urbit is a type of metaverse. If you, if you squint and you let go of the notion of a 3D world, it is a type of world because there are rooms and places in which you can modify and customize and build a culture. I, I think it's the permanence and the control that, that contributes to this, right? Because the permanence mm-hmm. is from the event log. And so you could potentially, like I said earlier, write it in cold storage somewhere and then bring it out later. And it could be restored to the state that you had the your entire OS in. Yep. And then I guess the because you own it, like actually own it, because you own the entire event log, I guess, and so, and you own your you own your identity. Oh, right, you own your identity. Then, I guess it really limits on the not only the attack surface, but also who gets to be an intermediary. I guess a lot of that is dependent on what other complicated things will happen. Because I, I can see somebody writing a C language in Hoon to import a whole bunch of like other stuff. I mean, that's if it's Turing complete, it's completely possible. So, yeah. Maybe I, I don't yeah. know the 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 universe of human desires is nearly infinite, and so I'm not so sure that it could be kept as such unless it stays niche. Like I can see, like if it becomes the way in which I guess if it's everywhere, like people would want to find a way to commercialize it somewhere. There's there's probably some sort of some aspect of the system that is a missing job to be done in the same way that search across the internet was a missing job to be done for the entire network. And so two guys decided to build it and it turns out that it was pretty profitable. Well, they weren't the first ones, Mm -hmm. but they were the first ones to figure out how to do it in a way where it's both profitable and it was pretty good. So Mm -hmm. I think that, I don't know, my money is on that. There's probably some missing job to be done on Urbit and then you'll have to figure out how to address that in urbit itself or if it will let commercial interests address that for its users yeah i think there is a fundamental tension here because urbit claims that uh you know they want to make this os as easy as possible this isn't an os for nerds maybe it is right now but in their grand vision this Mm -hmm. is something that anybody can run but at the same time if you look at the way that they describe their usage pattern it is uh, basically based on the idea that the the idea of exclusive exclusivity, right? Like the reason why Urbit is so nice to use is that you are on these, 
you know, private chats, private boards, you select into and you opt into the society that you want to interact with on mm -hmm. Urbit, as opposed to these broadcast networks like Twitter and Facebook and whatever, right? And so, you know, there's a tension there. Okay, well, uh, you, this is an OS for everybody, but it's also an OS that you uh, is kind of clicky, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and also it's interesting because if you, going back to the technical details, to the address space, the address space only has 4 billion addresses mm -hmm. available to sell. And that is fewer than the number of human beings that yeah. are on Earth right now, yeah. right? And so... Can everybody use Urbit? It sounds like by design they can't. I guess the birth rate would have to go down. I don't know. <laughs> well, birth rate would have to go down, and then <laughs> the entire absolute population of the Earth would have to go down. Well, I and then we wait, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so I think that there is some contradiction there. Uh, and I think this isn't just a you know, sort of by happenstance. I do suspect that actually what's happening is that the folks on Urbit are trying to build their own sort of opt-in society that is only for them, right? And gives them a sense of, you know, permanence and space and, and mm -hmm. all of this. And it's, uh, they maybe are paying a bit of lip service to the fact that they want to open this up for everybody and empower the, the user to have the digital independence. But I really feel like this is sort of a lot of this uh, obfuscation uh, and uh, esotericness is by design to kind of draw in a certain crowd who they want to interact with and who they want to be on Urbit and and sort of keep the riffraff out. What is this certain crowd then? What what do you what do you suppose the certain crowd in Urbit is? <laughs> yeah, so this is this is where it gets a little dicey. So the history of Urbit, like we mentioned, is is it was created by this guy, Curtis Yarvin. And Curtis Yarvin, like I mentioned at the top of the episode, is is a bit of a controversial figure because he has some very, I would, at least to me, deeply concerning views about how to structure society. Like I mentioned, he is sort of anti-democracy and and leans more towards sort of anarcho-capitalism, but also a type of like technocracy in which a elite technological class become the ruling class. And so they're sort of this this hard right bent to the project and supposedly supposedly urbit is under the governance of of the talon corporation which has is now under new leadership and and doesn't necessarily espouse these philosophies of its original founder yeah so but, so there there is a another guy like a co-founder i think his last name is paul I, f I forgot his other name his his uh first name or so but but yeah, yeah like supposedly like he's as a resignation letter yarvin has said like okay like the wish of any founder is that eventually they'll be able to step away because he has no wish to be a maintainer or a benefit bene, ben, beneficial no Benevolent. No benevolent wish for dictator. a benevolent, but benevolent dictator for life. Yeah. So, yeah. so supposedly that's the case. And yeah, I, I guess normally it's not nearly as concerning for, I guess, people with fringe views to talk about it on the internet. I think what makes Yarvin different is that he does have the year of politicians and billionaires. I think he's knows Peter Thiel and what is it, JD Lance Vance and. Mm -hmm. Who's the other guy? Blake Masters. Yeah, so I mean, uh, that's and 
not only that, like his writings, political writings influence their thought. And so I think like, does his political views filter into Urbit? And I think it's hard to disassociate the two because like, I think the way that you might build up, especially when he built all the way to the part of the stack where people are socializing and messaging with each other, certainly those things are, would be influential in how you set that up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and and again, like it, it filters into design. I, yeah, definitely, this is a social-oriented OS, right? And it is good to be critical about the effect of somebody's social view, the founder's social view, especially when it is going to become a. If it succeeds, it would become a mechanism of how people socialize and disseminate information, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I, and I think so. One of the case in point, and I don't know if this is still true or not, but like one of the things supposedly is the the way that the hierarchy of your ships or is it planets like you you are a planet and then you are part of a star, star. and so you if you are not playing well i guess within the star and the other planets then you can find somebody else and so the idea is that people can have their own little enclaves in which they talk to like-minded individuals and so that can be good but it can also be problematic because it just accentuates the echo chamber effect in which you only talk to people that have your own viewpoints and so we on the other hand like we do know that when anybody can hear anybody else on twitter that's not the right thing either yeah. but like everybody being closed off themselves i don't think is the right design either because i think it'll only exasperate the current problem we have in civil society today yeah and it it, it seems like yarvin wants this by design right especially mm -hmm. i imagine with this kind of fringe views that he has maybe he's looking to create a space for folks like-minded people to congregate and to discuss these without getting banned from t twitter or canceled as they say uh these days right this digital sovereignty and uh ownership model certainly you can view it through a benevolent lens but you can also uh, see how it advances and serves the purposes of somebody like Curtis Arvin. yeah yeah but then on the flip side, like a, a lot of the technologies that we have and take for granted were started by relatively controversial figures as well. For example, like the free software movement with Richard Stallman, like that guy mm -hmm. has some pretty radical ideas. And in yeah. effect, like, oh, like, so what are some examples of his radical ideas? Like he feels like all software should be free. Nobody should be able to make commercial money off of software. And I think it also relates to kind of these cipher punk values in which like mm -hmm. he made the free software foundation where like you can copy around software it's f free as in freedom not free as in burgers or whatever the free milk mail free whatever. as in beer yeah free as in beer and so so like that that is relatively different from the understanding of property digital or otherwise at the time and mm -hmm. since then like we've due to commercial interests like we've actually dulled it quite a bit like we we yeah. understand it more as open source and the way that we as mainstream commercial digital users use open source is that it's a way to organize different people and between companies to build common infrastructure because it's really good open source software is really good at building common infrastructure not so good at building like social software I've never seen like mm -hmm. twitter come out of like open source or anything like that but definitely a lot yeah. of the stuff that it has come out and so was what are other software that uh, are pretty radical with radical founders bitcoin i guess is, is another yeah, one right and, and also comes from the cypherpunk right. lineage yeah right and and so what yeah. what what have we seen in the 
like cryptocurrency space well they it turns out that they rebuilt a lot of the infrastructure and the trappings of the older financial system i mean there are some new things like there are things that are different but like either you could argue well that's why those things were in place in the first place or like it's the same motivations of power and wealth like motivated the same people and so yeah yeah, yeah that no, that, corrupt, that's a good absolutely point. so so but yeah like i and so in I, I guess to swing back to it like while we do i i know i personally don't agree with yarvin's own political philosophy i think for me the thing to look at is whether urbit itself has any legs technically and whether there are good ideas we can either use or crib for for other systems and so it's like the functional ideas are, are not they're they're not bad and it's related to as we mentioned like alan Kay and uh, some of the cypherpunk aesthetics of richard salman and satoshi and so we use those things in our day-to-day -day lives and yeah so so they're it, that that's one particular viewpoint and i think there are examples yeah. from other non-technical things as well right i guess i'll mention two real quick i guess like i think it's well known that dr seuss didn't really did not like germans and japanese and it's because he was working at a time during world war ii and he drew a lot of racist propaganda images it's just that he's most well known for children's thing and so do i not enjoy his children's books because he did that i don't know it's a personal call for some people and then subsequently, like, yeah, Newton, he's well known for, like, mechanics and physics and founders of optics. But, like, he was also into, like, alchemy and stuff like that. So, like, he was definitely dead wrong on alchemy. Like, he was trying to turn lead into gold and stuff like that in addition to yeah. his work on... Uh, and not just al alchemy. He wasn't just wrong about alchemy. He also believed in, like, the occult and had a variety of religious, fringe religious views as well. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so in, in those cases, I, I guess what I'm saying is I, I think I can like look, try to look at Urbit as, as it stands on its own merits and see whether there's something valuable there aside from the personal political leanings of its founder and creator. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it tends to go, it tends to go the way that you're describing where once sort of moneyed interests get wind of something that is potentially useful, then it, they sort of soften the the radical idea into yeah. something that like fits their purposes, and, and you know yeah everybody loves open source and stuff like that. But yeah, uh, Richard Stallman didn't start out with open source. He started out with copyleft, right? The idea that like private property, at least uh, property rights of software, shouldn't exist. So which is a pretty anti-capitalist, I would say. One thing that's interesting to me about this phenomenon of softening these radical ideas and whether it could apply here to Urbit is. You know, we mentioned, we talked a lot about the the obfuscation mechanism, right? Uh, renaming everything, giving things kind of weird names. Yeah. And then, like, also hiding. I think they're not quite so upfront about calling out the lineage, right? Like, it's you would be hard-pressed to find the word functional reactive programming mm -hmm. anywhere on their document, even yeah. though that is very clear what it is. Right. And I would say that all of this, as well as the kind of obscure bytecode of the knock interpreter and everything like that, is a type of protective mechanism in which it makes it so that the interface of Urbit is the, the amount by which uh, Urbit interfaces with the rest of the world, the rest of the software world is very limited, right? And so mm -hmm. that actually limits its attack surface in in sort of resisting commodification, right? It's not all that easy for somebody to just look at Urbit and say, well, we're just going to lop off this weird social layer which advances some philosophy that we don't agree with and we're going to use like these other middle parts of the stack or something like that. 
because it's so tightly vertically integrated, it's pretty hard to find an entry point to say, okay, we're just going to steal this bit here and add it to our cloud OS, which we're going to sell. Yeah, I think that's a good insight. Basically, it's a protection mechanism against the commodification that softens the founding philosophies going forward, right? That's what you're saying. Yeah. And so yeah. like, yeah. You, you either take all of it or none of it. You, you got to love all of me or none of me. You got to love me. <laughs> well, like you got, uh, what is it? If you, if you don't love me at, at, your, at my worst, oh, you yeah, don't yeah, yeah. me at my best. Right, right, right. <laughs> the, the, the most common saying on dating sites. And so yeah. perhaps perhaps it's it's that. And and so, yeah, I mean, the only way to do that, I think, is to understand its, its core concepts and then re-implement it elsewhere. I think that's the only way that that could actually be cribbed to take some of that power away. But otherwise, it's a take it or leave it sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And actually, it, this isn't a... It is a protective mechanism here and maybe here, depending on your views of this political philosophy, it seems like maybe a insidious uh, thing, right? But actually, we've discussed this even in the Dynamic Land episode. So Brett Victor is similarly very protective of Dynamic Land, which is his yes. view uh, yeah. of uh, operating system of the future, mm -hmm. yeah. and also tries to resist commodification because there's a certain view of not just computing, but also about how humans interact with each other through the computing environment yeah. that he's trying to advance, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And and so that can easily get subverted by moneyed interests and corporations and venture capital money and all of that. And so he's also actually designed a variety of protective mechanisms into that operating system. Right. And so it's interesting to see some parallels there. I don't think that Brett Victor and Curtis Yarvin would get along. I don't know them personally, but right. I feel like they are on a very different ends of the spectrum but they're using kind thinking, of similar yeah. parallel thinking yeah right and your advice to brett victor is just open it up open it up to everybody <laughs> and I, I guess it's the yeah. same I, I guess if you were at all consistent it would be the same for urban right like just re-implement yeah. it in our current systems yeah like i said it's it's not it's not beyond i mean he spent a long time on this and so i wonder what would happen if somebody implemented c hoon or c and hoon so that they can compile a whole bunch of c programs on top Mm, yeah, just like so you can run Emacs or something. Yeah, yeah, so you can run Emacs and Vim and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think it could be doable, like you said. And then I also wonder, just philosophically, because Emacs and and Vim come from their own philosophical lineage, right? Of of Unix and Bell Labs and all of that. How the Urbit community would appreciate or not appreciate the bringing of that, porting right. of those that software to their system. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 yeah so yeah. yeah, I don't know. So, so I guess it remains to be seen what that was the case. But then swinging back to our original question, I don't think we quite answered that question of like, what, what happens if this is pervasive? Like, what would you actually see? Like, what, what's the result of like, I guess your mom having like, Shri, I'm an urbit. <laughs> yeah. I want to do X. Like, or like, what, what would it actually be? Because like the idea of personal, personal computing that lasts for a long time, I think would change society quite a bit. Yeah, right not not just in the small yeah. sense of well we have these fringe well i don't know about fringe nowadays but like these i guess unpop like people that have views that they feel like they want to shield from other people but like mm -hmm. outside of that it doesn't mean that we can't take these tools and use it for other means and ends because like nowhere in a functional os does it mean that you can't take it to do other things like what are the other things that we would do for like a personal computer that we can keep for 100 years i mean one thing that that I feel is a big barrier to users really getting at ease with their computer is the idea that you can break your computer really easily. Like you can install oh, the wrong thing. It. Yeah, yeah, you can brick it really easily. Like you can install the wrong thing, 
or or even if you expand your idea of bricking beyond just like your operating system, you can corrupt your programs really easily, or you can get into weird software mismatches where like you were using some program, but then you updated your OS and now that old program won't, can't run because whatever, they're incompatible. Or even you can get locked out of your accounts really easily, right? You forget your password. You'll never be able to log in to the centralized services and, and things like this. And so I can imagine as a non-technical user, just the amount of fear that you have around interacting with anything because you don't, you get the sense that whatever you have, you need to like preserve and be like dance very carefully around interacting with anything because you can lose it very easily. Whereas, you know, if you look at Urbit, the idea that it's a functional OS that can apply operating system updates and the fact that you own this identity, right? And presumably that means there's no service to get locked out of. All of this I can imagine is more empowering and will enable users to interact with their computing more boldly. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where it's the Stockholm syndrome where it's like been like that for such a long time, you don't actually notice that it's a problem. But yeah, I mean, the I think for you and I, we know that we know enough to actually restore some things and the the we're only susceptible to big things like dropping our production database per se. We know that most everything else we can either like reboot, reinstall or reset. But like, I think it's easy to forget that for most average user, like the reason why web apps are so nice is because all of that is taken care of for you, right? Because before that, when you have your own personal computer back in the nineties, like you install a virus or like, you don't know what the hell happened and like your computer is slow now, but like, you got to take it into the shop. It's just like, just, I don't yeah. know. It's just, it's just too much because like everybody has a job to be done that is not computing. And so they're trying to use computers for that thing. But like if they can't or it's too complicated, they either hire somebody else or I guess they get frustrated, throw it away. Most people are not going to like, okay, let's grind it out and break out the manual to see what's going on underneath the covers. Yeah. Or they learn exactly the sequence of patterns they need in order to oh, get that yeah. one thing done. And then yeah. they don't know at all how to interact with the rest of their computer. Right, right. Exactly. I've seen that for users of NetSuite where like they remembered the sequence of menus or like whatever the search bar they had to reach a particular feature and that's mm -hmm. it. That That's how they navigate. Cause like I can't say I really like NetSuite's interface because I thought it was too complicated. But for people mm -hmm. that learn that one path to the one feature that they use, they're just like, yeah. I'm set, I'm set. <laughs> like uh, I don't need to. Yeah. Like, I don't need this to be simpler because I just need it to be the same. Yeah, no, and it's really surprising how common it is. So in, in my day job, I, I build software that is used by, in, in hospital settings, by doctors and, and nurses and, and, and people like this who mm -hmm. have very, very important jobs to be doing right. that don't involve mucking around with computing. And again, I think that pattern is there of nobody really likes their tools. Like, nobody's a fan of the medical record software that their hospital decided to buy or whatever, yeah. but they learn their pattern. And like you said, don't change it, right? If the software updates, they get lost because the things are not in the same place or they change their software system. So much amount of the budget for that software upgrade goes towards training and retraining people to use, to use the software because basically they've learned it by rote. They like somehow some, some way in which they've learned to use computing is just treat it as a magic sequence and only do that thing because if you don't do that thing, then you're going to break your your system and it's not going to be good. I see. It's almost like an incantation. I guess we were wondering like what it would like be like to live in the world of Harry Potter. It would be like that. Like most people treat yeah. the commands of menus or whatever they have to type as a magic sequence as a unit. And of course they would be frustrated when it breaks because it's almost as if the physical rules of the physical world broke in a magical world. 
Yeah, if you like accidentally mumbled the wrong thing, right? Then like mm-hmm. the, you broke your your world, right? So now it's very scary. You, you don't want to get it wrong. Yeah. yeah. So I can imagine that. Yeah, like if everybody had Urbit, then one, I think the the you can surface, undo, right? You can undo. Uh, yeah. That's that's the main point. That because it's a functional. Everything else, the code is functional, and the state is a sequence event log. And so if you mess something up, you can just like step one back, mm-hmm. and redo it actually i wonder how that works if you transmitted that event across the network does that event transmit it or if or events are always transmit yeah yeah you can't <laughs> yeah. untransmit it so but because you yeah. do get events from across the network hmm. I, I guess that's that's the thing i hadn't thought too hard about but maybe yeah they maybe like all events are local and then so if if something came in that is a mistake they just record it as a mistake and then on replay they ignore it again maybe something like that i don't know yeah something like that yeah, I guess if you've received an event before, then when you catch up, you know not not to reprocess yeah, not, it. Not to do again. something about it. Something well, anyways, that's it. that's that is a detail for maybe like if we cover it again after having much more experience with it, experience, uh, we can cover. Yeah. It. But I think there, the surface area is so large, we can leave that for a later episode, later possible episode and go back to this. But yeah, like the ability to undo because I I think in the same way that like saving is unknown to a lot of younger computer users now because apps save automatically. They actually don't know what floppy disks are either. So they're just like, I don't know what this means because they think of things not in files, but in apps. And so yeah. so it's it's kind of some, it's kind of almost, almost uh, I guess it caters to people's mental models of their work that like their work is sitting in one place rather mm-hmm. than as files to interchange. Although I feel like maybe one day people will regret not thinking about things as files because then that means you can move your data around, right? Yeah. Well, so so that's the interesting thing about Urbit is that, I mean, it does have a sense of a file system and things, but yeah, the they, the state of the system is just a single yeah. unit, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. But because of, fa- of the fact that you can persist that, persist that log and then also associate it with your identity, like you said, you can, you can maybe take your Urbit ship and and run it on a different computer. So like, let's say your actual physical hardware on which you're running this Urbit ship fails, provided that you backed it up somewhere, you could restore that backup onto a different physical device and you'll be back and running with the same OS state as you were on the other device. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, it's also kind of liberating because now you have a logical computer, right? Yeah. That, that is not connected to your physical computer, mm-hmm. whereas that's not the case today. Right. Yeah, and that means that you should be able to transmit it. I mean, I, I think they're relatively big, but you should be able to transmit that across space and time as well. Huh. I guess yeah. c- coupled with our earlier episode of the text editor for your mind, like Rome Research, like if you have a machine learning algorithm that records your messages as you type it should be able to generate text as if it were you and so effectively it's almost like a an artifact that soul binds you to your computer <laughs> or like takes a copy right and so with yeah. urbit now you could conceivably be resurrected or at least some copy of you like resurrected in the future because like we think of it before as uh, somebody is able to talk to you through your generated messages, even after you're dead. But now you yeah. could be doing that even, I don't know, a thousand years in the future, 10,000 years in the future. That's I see, I see. A little strange to look at because the time horizon is much, much longer. And so 
I yeah. wonder if a anything you have to say would be, still be relevant, but also B, I guess it's for for archaeology or like archaeological relevance. It would be really interesting if like we had something similar for Abe Lincoln or Albert Einstein, like that question of like who would you lunch with, alive or dead, could actually be a thing for like grade school students to experience, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I see what you're saying. So so basically, if you have that the the model, the language model, and then you use the Urbit OS as a kind of container format, right, which contains not just that model, but then also right. the data, maybe the you have the Abe Lincoln's like personal diary mm -hmm. files, yeah, from and which that model can like right you know, generate trained on to generate yeah. the text that would be what you would most likely type. And also, like Urbit is a social platform and messaging platform, so you mm -hmm. would do most of your communications through there, also, right? Oh, so you could just run a headless like Urbit OS that is running a language model and then taking its output and then sending it into the Urbit network into chat rooms or something. You, so you then, could like, do that in the Ghost Abe Lincoln can like right. chat with people on Urbit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the near term also. So that that's I guess that that would be a possibility also, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that 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 is that is pretty interesting. And actually, going yeah, this is going back to episode 1. We did talk about what if you could do this and and earn money, right? So what if you could sort of put your thoughts out into, into the world into a global hypertext, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, yeah. and then people would be able to pay you for this. And this is a way in which you earn money from contributing your ideas into a global knowledge store. And uh, actually, that this is potentially feasibly powered by Urbit as well, because from what I read, they are baking in a Bitcoin wallet as a first class entity into oh, the okay. Urbit OS yeah. so that you can actually perform some types of transactions and, and commerce that's backed by Bitcoin at the OS level. And so, yeah, I think maybe you could even perform some activities and get paid for them. It's kind of like that money REPL idea from, from episode one. Maybe that's too deep of a reference. but <laughs> uh, No, we want our viewers to get as deep in our self-referential as possible. It's just to, to rake them in into a network of self-referentiation. Yeah, actually, like, it makes me wonder then if, like, the payment is built into the network. That's something the internet was missing for a long time, and that's why we turned to ads as a way mm -hmm. to monetize the commercial interests of the internet. And so what would happen for a network that has payment already built in? Like, how would services work? Like, would you still have SaaS, and then you would just pay for services? Like, so I would somebody set up... Like, I, I can't imagine that... Like, if, if payment's already built in, like, what sort of services would people pay for one is like basically like the items that somebody has whether digital or other thing but then like for services like could you set up an app on your server and then people pay you for copies of that app to run now and for updates in the future but then the data that the app operates on happens on your own computer which i think is the point of verbit right yeah i think i think so i think that's certainly a type of commerce that could happen because a lot of what they describe with building Bitcoin into into Urbit is uh, it will enable certain types of uh, transactions like being able to sell content because presumably you can host some content on your Urbit ship and encrypt it and then not give the encryption keys, the, the decryption key, unless you received some payment or something like that, right? And so you can imagine selling copies of software this way or selling copies of any kind of content this way. Uh, by just saying, okay, it is publicly accessible on the Urbit network, but you only get the keys to, you know, decrypt this if you pay me via these microtransactions. Wouldn't you just sell NFTs and then the Urbit would check the NFTs for whether you'd actually own 
the license to it to be able to use it or not. But then I don't know. That would have to be baked oh. in into the Urbit OS itself. And so I don't know. Yeah, Could you I don't fork. Like people that don't want to pay would have have to end up forking the OS so that they. To remove the work. DRM check. Yeah, I yeah, feel yeah, like yeah. that's sort of antithetical to the this philosophy of Urbit. Like, I think that well, presumably but, once uh, you... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely. I, I guess I was thinking of, like, going down the path of commercialization that the internet has. What would it look like if a network already had payments? Like, what, what would c- commerce look like on here? Because if it's already pervasive, people definitely would want to transact with each other for various, yeah. like, goods and services that they have. And so would it follow the same path? of commercialization the internet with the consolidation of power or would it not like would it consolidate along some other dimension besides like code and data being in the same place on servers or something else right now because of two things identity is not baked into the internet right and and payments is not baked into the internet and urban has both and and urban has both so one pattern that arose on on the web is that you would have identity providers and payment providers that would become the middlemen to a lot of the transactions that people wanted to perform on 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 the web, right? So you have aggregators like Airbnb and, and Uber and right. eBay and all of that stuff, right? And so I think that because these two things are baked into the internet, now you don't need an identity provider and, and, and we don't need a shared identity provider like Facebook for me to know who you are and for you to know who I am. We just have our urban IDs and we can just transact then I think that there will probably be commercial entities, but they will not look like those types of aggregators and those types of, of middlemen. But I think that one thing I could see is that because Urbit is so scattered, right? Like there is no single feed or single platform that everybody's participating in, then it causes sort of a discovery problem, right? If I want to sell yeah. some good, then how do I know or how do people find out about me? Right, so they're probably the the intermediary or the commercial entity that will arise might be some type of indexer Google, <laughs> Google for Urbit, yeah. where you can find out who has who is posting up what. You will you will transact with them directly using the primitives of the system, but to find them you would need to go through some third party. Yeah, they didn't build in search, so then it's right for somebody else to come in build search as a service, which can then I guess. But then it's how do they ship the. They would have to ship the code to everybody and payment would be for promise of future updates. And data yeah. is data is on everybody's personal thing. So you can't, I guess if, yeah, that, that means that unless people participate on their own, you wouldn't know what their keyword searches are and thus you can't do auction for ads or something like that. Yeah, I'm not really sure how, how it would work. I mean, I imagine you could structure it the standard crypto way where in order to service your request like you'd send your request to some nodes and in order to service your request you'd have to send it along with some coin which the network providers own some of and so they make money off of the demand for that coin Um, oh i see i see right right so then it's it's more i guess all the the things that maybe maybe instead of like ads and privacy breaking things you just get a lot more scammy coins out there yeah, yeah. It, so you have to buy like SearchCoin in order to right. use a search application on Urbit or something. Yeah. And then, well, if there's a proliferation of coins, I can see a service in which like somebody promises you like a interoperable coin or like a bridge coin in which like you can you can trade it for like whatever search coin or like email coin you need to use in that instance, right? But then you can mm-hmm. freely trade trade it in that interoperable coin. Would that be Bitcoin? 
I guess so. I mean, like people might make their own coins, like the interoperable coin is Bitcoin. And then the service is that we'll trade it into whatever service level token that you need at that moment so that you can get the price. And then even better is if a service would do the trading in anticipation of your needs so that you can get the best mm. price. Because I think like airlines do that, right? They buy yeah. oil in anticipation of their needs so that they get the best price today rather than when they actually need it. Right, right, right. So, so, so basically, then the money comes from providing liquidity and right. then and yeah. futures and all this financial yeah, insurance. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, basically, all the things that we see going on in crypto right now may be the type of commercialization that would happen on Urbit. Yeah, which is which is the promise of all of these coins and all these these random networks is that presumably they're providing some utility, right? But the thing is that all these Web three utility services are not like really built in they're not really native to the computing environment yeah. that we use right but maybe mm -hmm. with urbit because of its emphasis on decentralization and data ownership and everything like that then if everybody's using this type of os then if you would want to use all these coins to transact with these services yeah basically like the financial environment is just like crypto but even more crazy because like I can see like fluctuations in prices and like people doing pump and dumps and there's no real way to do regulation on this sort of stuff either. Would there? Yeah, I mean presumably if this actually backed by real usage, like the, yeah. you are providing a real search search service which there is legitimate demand for by Urbit users, then that will stabilize the prices, right? And not make it so volatile and speculative but like yeah, I mean that's No, no, but then there there are other types of like schemes in like in like these financial systems that have since been regulated out of the system and for good reason right like for for example front running is it should not like it's it's clever but like it's not fair for the person that's doing the buying and selling so yeah. like you know like all these schemes were tried in the 20s and they've been outlawed or regulated away and then in crypto we just rediscover them all over again and we if there's no way to yeah, I'm not sure what the angle of reinforcement on Urbit is at the moment. There, there's probably mm. something. Yeah, yeah. But well, I, the, I mean, the 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 thing, I think the thing is, the thing that I, I guess going the reason why I'm going down this path is because I think in the small everybody wants their own freedom to do whatever mm. they want, talk about whatever they want, and I think the the needs and patterns of society as a whole is a little bit larger than that because on one hand when you say anybody can use crypto to transact sure like people think about like buying weed but then like yeah. uh on the other hand state level actors are a thing now in the space and one of the reasons why the u.s is able to keep some more authoritarian governments at bay is due to the ability to enforce economic sanctions and so mm -hmm. the that's like whether i mean i guess this is where the personal thing comes through like i prefer living in a liberal democracy you may not but you know like that that is a consideration for for how society is constructed so that we can do some types of regulation to do certain kinds of protection. And so I guess people will argue about the merits and the degree, but I don't think it's, I think it's it's going too far if it's just, everything is just completely unregulated. So, so yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think that's, that's the, you know, not to, not to put too fine a point on it, but this is where the 
politics and philosophy right, right. meet the system design. Like yeah. this is exactly where it's not an abstract concept, some hand wavy thing. Design decisions like data ownership, as well as making identity and payment of first class entities in the operating system, all of those interact with broader society and social structure, which is, I think, what you're saying. Yeah. And also that more and more technology, because it's so pervasive in our lives, software is so pervasive in our lives, it will increasingly also be a political stance. Whereas before, I guess people could write it off as just some nerds doing some stuff on the side. But increasingly now, I think it structures our society. And so lots of people will have lots to say about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, know, there's uh, going back to the question of like, yeah, what does this, uh, what does this mean? You know, just a few other things that come to mind if everybody has Urbit. I think the idea of having a globally identifiable address that is yours across all applications and everywhere on the network is really powerful because right now we have like multiple identities. I have a Facebook ID, LinkedIn ID, Twitter email early on when we were collaborating on this podcast we would you know sometimes send things via email sometimes by text sometimes by twitter dms because whatever that was what was most convenient at that time well supposedly well beeper is supposed to solve all that and so for those (laughs) of us that want to learn more about that you should go back to season one or season three episode one to see hear us talk with eric about beeper to solve that very problem yeah so so that's you know beeper is one approach which i think is going to happen in the nearer term than urbit but you know, you can also think in the Urbit world, once you know your friend's uh, Urbit ID, then you can you can just send them everything that way, right? So you can send them blogs, texts, whatever it is. You just sort of send it to that address and presumably they have the right application on the receiving end to view that content. So it's no longer about, the content is no longer tied to an application actually, like you're saying, right? So, you know, your data doesn't live in apps actually. It maybe it just lives your data is data, it gets sent to an address, and then it's up to the receiving end to view that data in the appropriate application. And and maybe they can use alternative clients and alternative front ends for the same data. Do you know whether, like, why, why could you do this with other identity providers like ENS? I, I think this is something you've given a little bit of thought to. Why could you not do this with ENS? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, so, I mean, I think ENS is interesting, but it, it's not actually tied to any routing mechanism is, is one thing, right? Oh, I see. Like other systems would have to implement the route, like basically would have to recognize it as an authority, authority in like what the name represents. So nobody's doing that at the moment. And so until Yeah, it does, so basically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so, so Urbit has the Ames network and Ames is not only uses the identity provider, but it is also the routing uh, that actually will deliver that that to you. Whereas I think with ENS, you could use ENS, but then you still have to send uh, the the data over some other backbone, right? Like whether that's TCP/IP or email or, or I don't know, whatever, some other thing. Mm, I see, I see. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I think that's that's the other thing, I, and and again, that's sort of empowering because yeah, if you think about how people use computing today, like one of the reasons why iMessage has really taken off is that if you know your friend's phone number, uh, you can establish a a pretty powerful chat protocol with them, right? Or, or even WhatsApp, right? It is the same way. They have this nice human shareable identifier to establish a link with somebody. But of course, both of these run through proprietary services and pr- proprietary identity providers. So so the, the Urbit IDs can be converted into a human pronounceable string, kind of a randomly generated human pronounceable string. And so you can say that to your friend, they'll type it into their device and then be able to establish a communication channel with you. 
Hmm. Yeah. So, so I was thinking about personal computing and I've always come across it in various contexts, but more in the personal empowerment sort of view that Alan Kay and other computing pioneers have talked about. But for Urbit, it feels a little bit different in that it's a, if it's like an actual physical computer. So I wonder if it's actually meaningfully different from the point of view of Urbit of having an actual physical computing of computer available to you that's yours. Kind of in the same way that if we talk, well, before cell phones and smartphones, when we talked about having a laptop always on you as a stand-in for mobile computing, it just mm -hmm. didn't quite jive, right? Because like the idea of having a laptop always on you, like you think, well, I guess, I guess I can write email all the time, but like it doesn't mm -hmm. translate to the experience of like being able to call an Uber or, or being able to text message your friends, like a group message, or it doesn't really communicate Snapchat, right? Mm -hmm. And so I guess thinking by analogy, if you have a personal computer, that's effectively you, mm -hmm. then I guess one weird thing is what we already talked about before is that that, that identity could be a stand-in for you in the future. And so that's one, I guess the other is that it's, it's a place. So it's kind of like your house. And so it's, it's the inter it's the digital interface by which you interact with the digital world. Right. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's kind of like almost like a second skin. I, I don't know how else to describe it. Like it, yeah. if I try to imagine it, but do you get what I'm talking about? Right. Because like from yeah. our standpoint right here, our computer is like a separate thing that we go to even our like mobile phones, but like it exists as a physical thing. And so just as it was hard for us to imagine the experience of using a mobile phone when at best we had laptops, like I think it's similarly hard to imagine like an always on personal computer that is immune to the underlying hardware and we can just move everywhere. And so yeah. I, I guess that that's kind of the, the thread I'm, I'm thinking out loud. Like what, what would that be like? I guess it could be a standing yeah. for me in the sense that I yeah. can set up shop and people can buy directly from me or interact with me, not just in an email sort of way or like a text message sort of way, but like if they, maybe like you could, like if you want to know my resume, you wouldn't go to LinkedIn. You would mm -hmm. go to my identity and ask me for it. And then whether I produce it for you or not by hand is one thing, but maybe there's an app that I run that automatically generates a resume of the places I've worked for for myself or like summarizes the data on my computer to, to give to this person. And so all I have to do is give permission. Yeah. And maybe depending on who's asking you give a different response, a different resume right. or a different output. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I like this, this direction because you know, if you read his fantasy novels, his dark materials, there's basically in this world, everybody Wait, no, has it, it by, What's uh, the by Philip. Philip Pullman, his Dark oh, okay. Materials. I see. And in this world, basically, everybody has a daemon uh, or a demon. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like Jojo right. Bizarre's Adventure. <laughs> yeah, so, so you have, like, a companion who is who is there and and, and in some sense is, is innately linked to you and your identity. It's not you, right? But it is it represents you, right? And maybe remembers your things for you, uh, can act on your behalf, all of these things. And so I think from what you're saying is that this computer is, is almost plays that role, right? Where yeah. it is somehow you're the repository of your knowledge, the repository of your memories and thoughts, 
maybe it can also, given those things, act on your behalf. And then I think another interesting aspect of this is going back to this point about the logical computer versus a physical computer. Mm -hmm. I think you brought it up in, in one of the earlier episodes that it would be really cool to have a ubiquitous computer where you walk up to anything, a terminal, yeah. any computing device that has computing capability, and then imagine that your Urbit logical computer is somehow authenticated onto that device. And now you use that, your own home, your own place, your own Urbit ship to then interact with the capabilities of of whatever new computer you're looking at. So then when you walk around the world and you interact with a you know, a touchscreen to order some food or you walk into work and you go to your terminal there, rather than all a, a variety of disparate computer, uh, computing devices that you're using, you actually are always interacting with something that feels familiar to you. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The, you would be the single point in which all services would try to flow through. Mm -hmm. I can imagine that being overwhelming. <laughs> Hmm, why why would that be overwhelming? I, I feel like it'd be comforting because you don't you you see your own computer everywhere. Oh, oh, you see your own computer everywhere, but then all sorts of applications and services are asking you for permission to access your stuff or to use it. Or like if you, I see, want to use some sort of service, you're like, give me permission, and you may not necessarily know or understand which part of your data is actually being asked for. I don't know. That that has to be much more clear. Yeah, I see. Yeah, I think that could be that could be confusing, and I think it have to be structured the right way. Yeah, I was imagining that, you, right, like somehow you just walk up to it, and you walk up to right. it, and then based on the capabilities, like let's say it's a vending machine, yeah, then that vending machine says I have the capability to accept payment and 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 vend, right? And so then your your Urbit ship maybe detects those capabilities and then presents an interface to you that enables you to enact that capability, yeah, rather yeah. than you using some foreign interface that somebody else designed. So, so I think it, it, the the permissions model and the the way that it's presented to the user as an affordance, I think, would have to be inverted. Otherwise, it would constantly feel like you're walking up to foreign devices that are trying to probe into you. Yeah. Whereas I'm thinking it should feel like capabilities are flowing outward from your device mm -hmm. and into the hardware. Right, right. It, it should feel like your spirit is in inhabiting the new device that you're walking up to, rather than things injecting themselves into you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I get what you're saying. Like the yeah. in a magical fa fantasy, like hand waving sci-fi sort of thing. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Right. yeah, and yeah, we'll see how if it can be implemented that way. But I think it's a powerful idea, right? Just the idea that you can have a computer that's not tied to any one thing, right? And then it can, then it represents something much more profound, right? Yeah. It, it represents you in a sense, and then it can manifest itself in a variety of ways. It can be stored in the cloud. It can run on any device. It can be persisted and then uh, restored be and hydrated, copied, oh, yeah. yeah, all of those things. So then, do you? I, I think these identities can be pseudo anonymous, right? Yeah, I, th I think they are anonymous by default, in that they, it's just an address. You don't know who it is. Because then, you could get flagged. Oh, I guess there'll be like de-anonymization de services that people are willing to pay for, and so like gathering data across like gathering transactional data and services across. Do you know if they have like a global ledger like Bitcoin does or? No, they don't have a, no, they don't have a global ledger. Mm, yeah. That makes it, might make it even more enticing for somebody to build that sort of thing and, and sell access to it as a way to de-anonymize people. Because I was wondering like, what about like a combination of a de-anonymizer and a social credit? Because like, if you're doing mm -hmm. like in China, social credit, because if you have an identity and it's, 
hard to jump from one to the other, then you might be perma panned from a lot of yeah. services for I don't know however long. And so nobody would actually be in prison; they would just be denied services in their day-to-day life sorry no yeah. running water for you the portal potty's out back or whatever it is right right yeah and i, I think that like the DAOs have this problem today yeah. actually right yeah. like how do you transfer your reputation within a DAO? how do you know who is who but like maybe the with each DAO can keep track of that but then when you move across DAOs and do work across DAOs, how do you know who's who and who's reliable right mm-hmm. and so i think that there is again this you know people are trying to implement some type of social credit system Again, decentralized, but it's some ledger that says that mapping, basically what you're saying between some address and reputation score or reviews or I don't know, like a, yeah, like a band status. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I can say uh, like after thinking about it for a little while, like there's definitely going to be commercial services that centralize something about the urbit network that isn't providing a job to be done that people would want. So I, I think there was one that that's one thing and it's up to I guess, or a bit to see what they're going to do about that because I guess it's a consistent fight against bundling. And so maybe there's a fighting chance because they actually have a way as an open source thing to make money by selling the identity. Mm -hmm. And and so then that might be able to fund things. As the platform owner, you see what the most popular application is and you just implement that and own it. And so that's kind of like what Microsoft does. So that's one. The other thing is the the personal extension of personal self across space and time. That I think is strange to to my ears right now, but I think mm-hmm. that that might be something that would be available. Oh, like it'd be weird for dating. Like if you're <laughs> right? Like you don't actually have to go on the date. Like your identity and your like date identity go and get together and run down the list of things whether they match or not. I mean, that's effectively what it is, right? <laughs> to yeah. see if they have chemistry. I mean, it could be, that's kind of like how OKCupid works nowadays, but like you could conceivably have, I guess, see if your like generated texts jive with each other and do some <laughs> sort of like semantic analysis on that to yeah, see like yeah. whether that's compatible as a first filter. And then you actually have the actual date where the source, like you and the actual real life person would converse. Yeah, so it would be like a frontline filter. It's kind of like lead code, lead code ex- exercises as like a frontline filter for programmers. And maybe that's just yeah. a way to do that. And so yeah, that yeah. is kind of weird. And then yeah. third is kind of where, I guess the, the financial aspects of where the network has payment already. And so maybe it would look like the crypto ecosystem right now. And so I think these are kind of strange futures. And they do relate to some of the other technologies that we're seeing with like the DAOs, cryptocurrencies, and it all just ends up being a really weird world. <laughs> and I, I don't know if oh i guess the other thing i was thinking is that these uh, basic building blocks would i think we mentioned this in the dao episode that these are building blocks for people to create like new social groups like ways of organizing and so not just mm-hmm. at the organization level with DAOs, but like interpersonally and in small tribes up to nation states potentially and so that that is all i guess a real possibility with this sort of stuff yeah. So yeah. so it's a far cry from like personal computing in the Allen K sense or from the who's the Mindstorms guy? The Seymour Papert. Yeah, Seymour Papport sense. This is kind of more a digital extension of the self where the digital is copyable and it persists across space and time. It's weird. Yeah, yeah. I think I think yeah, once you start layering on, you know, other other technologies as building blocks and start right. to weave them into this like it becomes even a crazier world and 
yeah, so you know, as, you, as, as soon as you bring in AI, as soon as you bring in cryptocurrency and DAOs and all these other ideas, then actually this starts looking really, really interesting. Like right now in its current state, it's a kind of a bizarre toy for yeah. maybe some fringe type folks. But yeah, like once you start to layer in some other things, this is a very interesting future. You know, we should really get science fiction writers as listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if you if you follow this line of thought to its logical end, it it poses a very, very interesting form of computing, but also a new ways of social interaction, new ways of organizing people, and then also provides opportunities for other players to provide services, right? Like, where does the value get created in a world in which everybody has a personal computing device? I think, like you said, maybe in in a social credit system, in other types of aggregators that are different from the kinds that we see today. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think that Urbit comes from controversial roots, but if you think about it just even from a as a thought exercise about how can something as concrete as an operating system really change the trajectory of a society, right? How can something as concrete as computing affect the way in which people relate to each other i think that urbit is a is a great example of that and so yeah i think whatever you think of the founder and his views and whatever you think about the esoteric nature of this operating system and whether yeah. it's viable i think that it's great to as technologists for us to think about what is the interface between computing and society yeah yeah and and generally like when we're pre-gaming i told you that generally i don't talk too much politics but i think more and more when when we think about the future of technology, it's going to be intertwined with politics because I think politics at its core is about how people should live together, I guess, is is the succinct way that I would put it. And people disagree on how people should live together. And I guess the mechanism by which we decide how we all should live going forward is politics. And because software is more and more pervasive in our lives, it's becoming a louder and louder voice in that discussion and not just the people that use it, but the people that build it. Yeah, you know, we've gone through Urbit from a technical perspective and through all its implications. And yeah, so how are, how are you feeling about Urbit overall? I, I can't say that, like, for, yeah, like I can't say that I am to the moon on this one <laughs> in the sense that I think the the its roots definitely give me pause. But then one of the things that I talked about earlier was that there are plenty of technologies that I use day to day that have softened from its roots and like, I don't give it a second thought. And so, but then also too, I think there are interesting ideas that Urbit cribs from other places that it implements in a concrete way that demonstrates that, hey, this stuff works and is feasible. And I think the rest of the technology ecosystem could probably take a couple notes from there if they can get through the parts of obfuscation which i don't think really does urbit any favors in terms of mainstreaming but i understand that it was there to select for certain early adopters early on and that may just be a legacy that that it has going forward so yeah i don't know i, I think but to summarize i think the important thing going forward is its influence on architecture like a pure functional sense and then the other thing is 
a an experiment in how people would socially interact in this sort of digital realm. I, I would say that those are the two places in which it I would expect it to have a lot of influence in both technical systems and our social systems going forward. So with that, that's another that's another episode of the Technium. Give us a like or subscribe on YouTube. Write us a review on your favorite podcasting app uh, aggregator to help other people find us. And uh, yeah, join us next week for another episode, another look into the future of computing. That's right. All right. That's all we got this week. Like Sri said, give us some love and we'll see you again next week for another episode of The Technium. See ya. Bye-bye.